Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In our introductory course, we noted that Shakespeare's plays remain so captivating across the centuries because they have room for us. The plays are full of questions that are posed and never answered, and that make space for each new generation to offer their own responses to the plays. To give you a sense of how one work can evoke many different responses, we're speaking with two different scholars for this course on Hamlet. In episode one, Professor Paulina Cues spoke to the play's political concerns. In this episode, Professor Simon Palfrey takes us inside the protagonist's mind to think about the play's philosophical and psychological questions. Yeah, hi, I'm Simon Palfrey. I'm a professor of English at Brazos College, University of Oxford. One of the play's most perplexing questions concerns the main character. Who is Hamlet? In this play, Shakespeare gives us someone who reveals more about himself than anyone else. He speaks the most lines of any Shakespearean character. And yet, Hamlet is also one of the most unfathomable characters we'll encounter in the plays. So um, with this play, Hamlet, we've really got to start with the character of Hamlet because this play gives us the most mesmerising, charismatic, intimate, mysterious infuriating, dazzlingly intelligent, ferociously passionate, terminally damaged character in all of world literature. Never had such a a bursting, mercurial, restlessly inventive person been encountered on stage or elsewhere. And never had the sleepless and torturing experience of grief and loss and rage been entered at such length or depth. The heart of this character's appeal is that Hamlet seems to live, or perhaps to relive, to test from the ground up what it means, or what it might mean, to be a human. How does Shakespeare create such a complex and mesmerising figure? His strategy is simple but powerful. In the character of Hamlet, Shakespeare combines opposites. And that experience with Hamlet is all the time one of contradictions and paradox and living the contradictions, living the paradox, living the questions that that produces. In Hamlet, we find someone who has reason, but is the fool of passion. He seems to have choices, but he's constantly vulnerable to accidents. He has ideals. He believes in the beauty of humankind, and yet he is rankly disgusted by everything he encounters. He's loving and faithful and generous and forgiving and forbearing. He seems to be a kind of democrat of the heart, and yet he's also a violent misogynist and an aristocratic snob. Hamlet is loving and generous both to his peers and to his social subordinates. He greets Horatio and the players with joy when they arrive in Elsinore, but he also extends friendship to his servants. 
When Horatio and the guards depart with the submissive words, Our duty to your honour, Hamlet replies, Your loves as mine to you. He insists that the humble players be treated with generosity, telling Polonius, The less they deserve, the more merit is in your bounty. But to Polonius, Hamlet can be sarcastic and cruel, and even jokes after he kills him. This counsellor, he says, is now most still, most secret and most grave. He seems to be endlessly articulate and yet unable to explain his own actions or inaction. He seems to be devoted to, to truth, to be allergic to lies and yet to find the possibility of expression and recognition only in play and disguise and performance. Hamlet has more words than anyone else in the play, and yet he often uses those words to explain that he cannot explain himself. Speaking about his task of revenge, he says, I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do, since I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. He's disgusted by the thought of people merely pretending to feel certain emotions by putting on a show of sighs or tears. Actions that a man might play, as he says. But he himself puts on a show in order to find out the truth about his father's death, saying, I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. Performance, in other words, both repels and attracts him. And so in all these ways, Hamlet lives these, the, the impasse, the contradictions um, of, of, of being human. The character of Hamlet in all sorts of ways is fierce and often eccentric. He contains multitudes. He's, 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 he's the fullest character that had ever been written up to this point, the fullest character, and yet he's full of absences and mysteries and unspoken things. He's full of these gaps, these questions which we have to enter, questions which only we can offer answers to. Questions define the very language of Hamlet's play. Characters are constantly interrogating each other and themselves in terms that seem simple at first, but that speak to deeper problems. The play is um, famously a play um, of questions, beginning with the very first line of the play, who's there? It's a simple question. There's a man there standing in the dark and then he senses some other body and he doesn't know who it is. He says, who is it? And so it's, it's, it's an immediate, simple, logistical, physical, factual question. And yet it's a question which opens up these most basic questions of existential questions, that is epistemological questions of knowledge and ontological questions of being. Who, who are you? The play's apparently simple questions constantly probe beneath the surface to ask who people really are and whether it is possible to ever really know who they are. The play's first line, who's there, is spoken by one guard to another during the night watch. But the question resonates in other moments in the play, moments when it's not so easy to answer. When the ghost appears, Horatio calls... What art thou that usurps this time of night? Essentially asking again, who's there? And that question of who the ghost is, 
what kind of being it is, presents an ongoing challenge. So does the question of who Hamlet is. In his first scene, his mother asks why his father's death seems so particularly distressing to him. This is another apparently simple question that opens up a deeper philosophical puzzle about knowledge. Hamlet insists, Seems, madam. Nay, it is. I know not seems. But as he goes on, his words suggest an uncomfortable truth. All we can ever know about other people, he implies, is how they seem to us, not who they really are. I have that within which passes show, he says. His true inner turmoil is not visible at the surface. In other words, a person's real identity is something hidden, something no one else can ever fully know. Seeming to confirm this view, the play also raises many questions about Hamlet that are never resolved. Why is he so melancholy? Does he truly become mad? Or is it just an act? One of the biggest questions, a question Hamlet asks about himself, is why he delays his revenge. Some readers have wondered whether he simply can't make up his mind about what to do. But Simon Palfrey finds that explanation doesn't really account for the complexity of the character and the play. It turns Hamlet into a kind of a ditherer, a, a, a figure who just kind of perambulates around the issue, who avoids confrontation, who would rather sit there kind of mooning. But also, I think that that particular um, idea that this is a play about a man who cannot make up his mind, that the danger there is that you see the play too simply as a revenge tragedy, as a tragedy which is defined by a task which is set the hero and his job is to complete that task. Um, and Hamlet is more of an anti-revenge tragedy than a revenge tragedy. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet after revenge tragedies became extremely popular on stage. These stories revolved around an initial crime and a revenger seeking to punish the person who committed it. In many of them, such as Shakespeare's own Titus Andronicus, the focus is on the revenger's drive for justice and the bloody violence that accompanies it. But in Hamlet, that conventional story becomes the vehicle for a larger philosophical investigation, which questions what revenge can actually accomplish. On the one hand, there are straightforward crimes that need answering, that need justice or vengeance. On the other hand, the ghost confirms to Hamlet the fact of questions, the fact of enormity, the, the fact that there are that, that there are things happening which cannot be understood, that cannot be countenanced, the fact that there is darkness, the fact that there is this kind of terrifying, um, incredible challenge to understand things and all that sort of stuff, the call to revenge. I think is is almost like a, a kind of a cipher for something more profound. If it were remotely possible that the act of sticking a dagger in Claudius's heart would solve the problem, um, Hamlet would have done it straight away. Um, but it wouldn't. The question of Hamlet's delay is intertwined with deep mysteries about the afterlife, about death, about existence. 
His soliloquies, the speeches he utters in solitude, might seem like they just put off his important task, but they're also where he confronts those deep mysteries, especially in the speech that begins with the play's most famous question, to be or not to be. The most famous line in all literature probably is precisely that, to be or not to be, that is the question, which in its very kind of blandness, its simplicity and its enormity um, opens up the the question of being, what is and what is not. Um, And at at every point in the play, that that question is being um, mobilised and explored. There are many questions on Hamlet's mind. Should he obey the ghost's demand and kill Claudius? Should he relieve his grief by killing himself? But just as the play goes beyond a simple story of revenge, this line goes beyond a simple decision about what to do. It it does speak to the question of suicide or not, of, of consenting to live or not, of causing the death of another or not. It is all of it, but but all of those all of those questions are kind of secondary to the more basic question about being or not being. And I think the play is living on that, it, it, it's existing on that line between the two. So, for example, the ghost is a perfect sort of vector of that dilemma because the ghost is both being and non-being. It's not living and yet it's not dead. It exists in that liminal zone um, where, where, which embodies the question of to be or not to be. And that is the place where Hamlet is, as it were, forced into that space, that space of unknowing, of absolute contingency, of undecidability. And so the, 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 the simplicity of to be or not to be kind of encapsulates and holds within it um, these vast and profound questions. And all of the, 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 the questions, big and small, that the play generates, they all, in a way, kind of return to and can hatch out of that statement of to be or not to be. The play poses all kinds of questions about whether something does or does not exist. Ophelia and Hamlet's love, Gertrude's knowledge of her husband's murder, Claudius's repentance, Ophelia's suicide, the ghost's truthfulness, Hamlet's madness. The line to be or not to be holds all these up as questions for every new performance to grapple with, as actors interpret these characters and events. But the line also encapsulates a puzzle for humans in general. The speech beginning to be or not to be ends on a word that is crucial for the play, action. If Hamlet is an obsessive thinker, he also thinks obsessively about action and whether humans are free to act. This character and the play is obsessed with all these words like choice, action, will, and so on. All these words which suggest that that the individual has some ability to think about things, make decisions, and act upon those decisions. But again and again and again, the play shows that choice, freedom, will, all these things are at the mercy of circumstances, the mercy of fortune. 
There's a particular moment when Hamlet is struck by the impotence of human action. It's another moment in which the play seems to enter a strange space between being and non-being. It's when Hamlet contemplates Yorick's skull and seems to see his own face there. In some really, really basic way, the skull is uh, a figure of every man. The, the idea of every man, which is the death that necessarily shadows and attends you from the day you were born until the day you die. Um, this skull that lurks inside you all the time, unseen, but always there, waiting. The skull that will necessarily succeed you. The skull that you already are. And so the skull he holds is himself. But the skull is also everybody. And so I think that that holding the skull, is, is it kind of encapsulates perfectly that image of Hamlet as an everyman, that image of Hamlet as someone who's facing sort of fearlessly but also morbidly the inescapable facts of life and death. Those facts become even more inescapable thanks to the play's language. It is filled with imagery of sickness, rotting, corruption and disease. Many of these images come from Hamlet himself, who feels more deeply than anyone that something is rotten in the state of Denmark. He's death-haunted. He's disgusted. He has got a perverted imagination, a sickened and nauseated imagination. And holding a skull like that and, and thinking as he does with an excruciating detail about the, 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 the living person that this skull used to be, now we're thinking about the worms that have eaten it. All that speaks to the very distinctive um, morbidity, the sort of decadence of Hamlet's imagination. But if the skull calls forth Hamlet's disgust, the fact that it's Yorick's skull also calls forth his love. And then, that, but on the other hand, holding that skull is a perfect image of Hamlet's sympathy for the other, sympathy for others, his his generosity which is crucial to his to his character his, his because you know here is this fellow who he knew as a boy as a, who died when he was seven years old he's just a clown he's a nobody and yet he's somebody to hamlet and so that you've got again the, the the other side of the universalizing um significance and importance or and, and or just the 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 universalizing um, reach of, of, of Hamlet is that, that this person could be anybody you can feel for, love, remember, sympathise with um, anybody. Another striking feature of this play is that Shakespeare too reveals how he can sympathise with anybody in the sense of bestowing attention on anybody. Some have said his protagonist is the most interesting character in literature but Shakespeare takes an interest in every character in this play, not just Hamlet, meaning he gives every character some significant unanswered questions in their history. These questions mean that Ophelia, Horatio, Claudius and Gertrude also invite our interpretation and attention. Consider Gertrude's story. Was she involved um, in the murder of her husband? Did she have knowledge of it? Did she have... Um, implicit knowledge of it? Did she give her tacit consent to it or not? Um, has she committed a crime if she hasn't committed a crime? These sorts of questions. We also see Hamlet's struggles mirrored in other characters. 
Hamlet's feigned madness becomes Ophelia's real madness. Hamlet loses a father, Laertes loses a father. Act 4 is almost an abbreviated version of Hamlet's story, replayed through other characters. Ophelia comes in mad, and then Laertes comes in mad in his own way. And um, both of them in different ways, suffering from Hamlet and suffering with Hamlet. There's something happening there. The speed, the pace, the intensity, the 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 trouble, um, and and in a way, the kind of uh, the unfairness of the of of the play there in not giving quite enough space and time to the grief, the madness, the fractured minds of Laertes and Ophelia, right? Who, who are experiencing the most profound things that anybody can ever experience, whether it's loss of love or loss of a father, or loss of mind. These stories play out while Hamlet is absent from Denmark. The scenes that dramatise his return encapsulate Shakespeare's strategy of combining opposites to create this character. On the one hand, Hamlet seems newly in touch with a transcendent kind of spiritual insight – he invokes God's providence and assures Horatio that there's a divinity that shapes our ends. On the other hand, he is still just as tormented by the inescapable facts of material death and decay. Now, what we get when Hamlet returns is a, is a mixture. There's no question that when he comes back, he does have certain statements like the readiness is all, there's, there's providence in the fall of a sparrow, if it will be, it will be blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. But Hamlet also makes jokes about the bones in the graveyard, just as he joked earlier about worms eating Polonius after he killed him. When Claudius asks where Polonius is, Hamlet replies, At supper. Not where he eats, but where he is eaten. We fat all creatures else to fat us. We fat ourselves for maggots. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service, two dishes but to one table. He talked about the beggar and the king sharing this worm, um, these kind of grotesque and taunting jokes he makes about that. Um, that's precisely the same imagination that's at work when he's imagining Alexander's skull, you know, you know how Alexander is now kind of the, the mortar in a toilet, this sort of stuff. Um, this, this kind of degrading, um, disgusted, uh, fatalistic imagination. And so even in the last act of the play, Hamlet's character still raises questions. Is Hamlet guided more by his idealism or his disgust? After death, does he expect to find God or nothing? As much as we might understand Hamlet's um, uh, a kind of stoicism or uh, taking the long view or a kind of a Christian sense of, of whatever will be will be, we might also see it as a form of nihilistic fatalism. There's also the question of whether or not the play's events change and mature Hamlet. And so I think what I my, my conclusion is that, that there is that there is certainly an access to a, a, a form of calm wisdom which can at certain points be spoken with memorable, pithy, aphoristic, self-collected kind of um, rhythm, a, a, a sort of genuine wisdom. But you have to extract that from a much more turbulent and erratic 
kind of stream of of consciousness. And I think this is absolutely characteristic of Hamlet throughout the play, is that he's there's never been a character who speaks with so many different registers, and that never changes. That simply doesn't change. You have a kind of imperfect maturation. You have a kind of incipient possibility of a, a worldview which is perhaps resigned or perhaps more mature, but it's still struggling in a context of extraordinary inward conflict. It's that sense of extraordinary conflict that has kept this character in this play alive around the world for more than 400 years. And so Hamlet provides a good sense of how to think about all of Shakespeare's plays. What large questions does the play open up? And how does Shakespeare keep them open? The play suggests many answers, but rarely settles on one, which is why each generation can keep asking those questions again and again. He leaves gaps everywhere. He leaves, he, he leaves things unexplained, which allows us to, to, to enter. There's a, there's a mixture in Shakespeare of gaps and, and, and lacunae and unexplained things where we can, our, our imagination or our sympathies can enter into these gaps and supply what he doesn't supply. And this applies to readers and to actors, to audiences. So there's these spaces in which we can, we can enter and, and, as it were, clarify things or fill things out. In the next episode, we'll examine some of the gaps and ambiguities in Hamlet's soliloquies. We'll see how Shakespeare uses the simplest of tools, a syllable, a line break, a pause, to transform words on the page into a living, thinking mind. <laughs>